Let me start off my sermon by asking you a question. If I were to take you out to lunch after the service and I ask you where you wanted to go, by a show of hands, how many of you could tell me a couple of the following things right here, right now? Maybe what kind of food you'd want to get, what restaurant you'd want to go to, maybe what meal or specifically you'd want to get, or if you're thinking of a specific restaurant, maybe if you want to sit outside on the patio or inside in a window seat or a booth, any of those things. How many of you right now by a show of hands can tell me those things? At least a couple of them. Okay, good, good. We have a lot of people here who can do that. So I can almost definitively say that you who raised your hands are not on the road that we're talking about today, the road of peace. And that's because the road of peace is not for the decisive, for the opinionated, for people who know exactly what they want and can make that snap decision like you all just did. Instead, the road of peace is for the indecisive, for the people who don't want to share their opinions because they don't want to offend the people around them or they're afraid that someone might disagree with them. The road of peace is for the people who would rather have someone else make the decisions and they'll just be happy to follow along. In fact, I bet if you ask someone on the road of peace, they would probably say that they would prefer that the road of peace wasn't a road but a river where they could just hop in a boat, let someone else take them wherever it is that they want to go. They could just sit back relax, and enjoy the trip, making sure the whole time not to rock the boat. Now, I think Abraham fits this description. I think the road of peace is the road that he walks. And if you're a little bit confused still on, on what someone who walks this road of peace might, might look like, here's some statements that they might say. I tend to procrastinate and do trivial things and get distracted by them rather than doing what I need to do and get done. I find routines comforting. I'm happy to go along with what others want to do. I don't think of myself or my ideas as being very important. I can be passive aggressive when someone does something I don't like, but they might not even know that I'm mad about it. People say that I'm a good listener. I don't like to make decisions. I'd rather have someone else do that. It would feel selfish to me to spend an entire day doing only what I wanted to do. And I'll do almost anything, anything to avoid conflict. Now, if you're sitting in, in the church today or you're sitting at home and you're, you're thinking to yourself, this does not sound like me. This is not me at all. Just know that you still need to pay attention because the people who are on this road need you to hear this. Because oftentimes what happens is that we see people who are on the road of peace as being maybe too passive or maybe that they don't have a lot of personality or originality or a lot of good ideas to bring to the table. But in fact, people who walk the road of peace have a lot to offer and a lot to contribute to the rest of us. Some of the things that someone on the road of peace has to offer is that they have a sense of calm about them, something that most of us don't have, that uh, an ability to be relaxed in almost any situation, not to get too stressed out about anything. And if you walk into a room, they're, they're the people who have that non-anxious presence, if you ever heard of that term. They, they just calm the entire room down. 
And people who walk on the road of peace are also very open and receptive to new ideas. And they're very good at looking at things from others' perspective. In fact, people on the road of peace, they can see one situation from every perspective of every other road that we talked about in this sermon series so far. They're, they're unique in that way. And that's a good thing because those people who are on the road of peace have the ability to take all these good ideas to see the benefit of each of these perspectives and synthesize them into one great solution or perspective that includes everybody's contribution. And the other thing that the people on the road of peace are really good at is caring. Because people on the road of peace, they're that person that you always can go to and you know that you can talk to them, that they'll listen to you and that they'll understand you and where you're coming from. They'll hear you out. And for that reason, people on the road of peace make great pastors, teachers, counselors, and really any job that has to deal with other people and having good relationships with other people, making sure that other people can trust you. People on the road of peace are uniquely good at those things. Now, does this sound like someone you know? Or maybe it sounds like you. And I just want to say, if this sounds like you, know this and hear this, that everyone else, we appreciate you, we see you, we value you, and we love you, and we wish that you share a little bit more of what's on your mind. Because you have some great ideas, but oftentimes they get lost. Because what happens on the road of peace, the, con the, the pitfall that you have to avoid on the road of peace is, you guessed it, conflict. That people on the road of peace like to tiptoe around conflict. They like to avoid it. <clears throat> For example, let's go back to that one question I asked at the beginning of the sermon. If you ask someone where they want to go to eat and there's someone on the road of peace, what you're going to hear them say time and time again, and this is really revealing if you're thinking that someone you know is on the road of peace, what they're going to say is, I don't care. Whatever you want, whatever makes you happy. And they'll say that over and over again until you get frustrated with them. But the people on the road of peace say this because they don't want to make the decision. Because if they make the decision where you're going to go to eat and you don't like that, that's going to be a conflict. And they don't want to have anything to do with conflict. And you'll see that if you know someone on the road of peace and they say this and you press them, say, no, I, I chose where we went the last 10 times we went out, out to eat. I want you to pick this time, they're going to try to pick a place that they think you'll be happy at. They're going to try to read your mind and pick the place that you wanted to go to or that they think you'll want to go to. That's how desperately they want to avoid conflict. And this, this behavior is called self-forgetting, okay? So, so they self-forget. They forget about their own opinions, preferences, their own priorities, convictions, even their own beliefs. And they set those things aside so that they can make the people in their lives happy, so that they can mitigate any conflicts, any potential conflicts that they might see in their lives. And this is what Abraham does, and it's a big problem for him because what he ends up doing is compromising and conceding so much that he ends up giving his wife away on two occasions. And the other thing he does is he listens to other people's opinions rather than listening to what God wants him to do. 
And you'll see why that's a big problem in a minute. But you can also see how this can affect almost every area of your life, this tendency to self-forget. It's a problem in, for you who walk the road of peace in the workplace because you have great ideas, you, but you're not going to bring them up because you don't want to rock the boat. You're not going to bring up that idea for a change in a project or in how things are done because you don't want to rock the boat and risk a potential disagreement or upset the equilibrium in your workplace. It affects your relationships too because whether it's a relationship with your friend or your family or your spouse, whatever it is, if there's someone who's very decisive, very opinionated, then they're just going to plow over you every time and do what they want to do. And as a result, after a while, you're, you're not going to be happy. You're going to become even maybe passive-aggressive towards that person or even resentful of that person. Or the other thing that's going to happen is that the other person is going to get so frustrated because they want to hear what you have to say and your opinion, your preference. They're going to get so frustrated with you that it's going to create a bigger conflict than if you had just said what was on your mind in the first place. And when that happens, you're going to do a couple of things. You're going to try to ignore, avoid the problem, and it's only going to get bigger. And the way you're going to try to avoid it or ignore it is that you're going to try to forget about it. And you're going to try and numb yourself out to it and forget that the conflict is there. So that you'll do things like watch TV to escape it, or you'll, you'll go out and do a hobby that you enjoy doing. You'll have a couple of drinks to relax and forget about it because you don't want to remember that conflict. You want to forget it exists. And that's, you can see how that's dangerous. But I think the most dangerous way that this self-forgetting affects your life is in your spiritual life, in your relationship with God. Because what happens is that if you're going along on this, on this boat, on this journey down the river of life here, then God has a plan for you. He has commandments and a plan for you that he has laid out for you to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And you're going to have good intentions at first. You're going to go out and set out to do that. But other people in your life are going to try to wrestle with you for control over the direction of your life, over that course that's been charted for you. And the wisdom of the world, the culture of the world is going to tell you that, that your beliefs are outdated or that, that they get in the way of your happiness or your own sin in your own heart is going to grapple with you for control over your life. And what's going to happen eventually is that you're going to end up in places you don't want to be. You're going to fall into sin you never thought you would fall into and you're going to go places God doesn't want you to go into sin. And with all this wrestling for control over the course of your life, you're eventually just going to sit back, relax, and let go. And go wherever life is going to take you. And try to numb yourself out to forget about it. And you end up seeing yourself as unimportant. And I think that that is the problem that Abraham has. Because 
For a refresher, if, if, you're, if you need a recap on who Abraham was, Abraham is the patriarch, the father of Israel. From him, the entire nation of Israel would come and his descendants. And God makes a promise to Abraham. He calls him out of his idolatry, out of his idol worship. And he says to him, Abraham, I'm going to make you a promise that I'm going to make you into a great nation. And I'm going to make your name a blessing. And so Abraham who is 75 at the time with his wife, Sarah, which is an old age to be making a big life change, like leaving everything you've ever known to follow this God that's made a promise to you. But he goes out with his wife, Sarah. They don't have any children because Sarah can't have children, but they take all their possessions and they go out. And in spite of the, the ridiculousness of the promise that, that he's going to be made into a great nation and his wife is too old to have children, he goes anyway. And he believes that is until he's confronted with a conflict. And like anyone on the road of peace is going to do, he tries to avoid that conflict. The conflict that he's having problems with is he's worried that he's going into this Egyptian land. And he's worried that the Egyptians, who aren't God-fearing people, are going to attack him and kill him or do some sort of harm to him so that they can have Sarah, who is apparently very beautiful. And so he's worried about this, so he tells everyone that Sarah is actually his sister, so they won't attack him, but they'll treat him in a, in a generous way. And eventually, he ends up giving Sarah away, his wife, to Pharaoh. And as you can imagine, that's not God's plan for Abraham. And God sets things straight. He puts plagues on Pharaoh's house, and Pharaoh realizes that he's made a mistake, that this woman is actually Abraham's wife, and he tells them to go and get out. And so, you see, Abraham made a bigger conflict for himself than if he had just trusted in God's plan in the first place. And so, God makes another promise to Abraham. He adds an extra layer to the promise. And what he says is, to Abraham is that he's going to make his descendants as innumerable as the stars of the sky. That's what, that's what God is going to do for Abraham. And he makes a covenant, an Old Testament promise with Abraham, a promise that, that you would stake your life on. That's what a covenant was in the Old Testament. That's how serious it was. And so Abraham, all he has to do is receive this promise that God is making to him, this intense promise, and just stay the course and do what God has planned for him. But of course, we get to our reading today, and what do we see Abraham doing? We see him again failing to trust in God's promise. So that he listens, not to God, but to his wife, Sarah, who tells him, hey, look, we know that I can't have children. Why don't you take my servant, Hagar, marry her, and have a child through her? Maybe that's how God's going to bless you. And so Abraham says, okay, sure. And obviously, this doesn't turn out well. It doesn't make sense to have two wives, and it doesn't work out for Abraham because what happens is Hagar has this son, but then Hagar and Sarah have a falling out, and it eventually creates a bigger conflict than if Abraham had just trusted that God was going to provide for him. And he complicates God's plan for him. So God comes to him again and makes another promise. He intensifies this promise and gets really specific this time so that Abraham will listen up and will believe it. And what God says to him is that, okay, Abraham, look, I am going to give you a son 
Sarah is going to bear your son, and you are going to call him Isaac. And more than that, he is going to be conceived a year from today. A year from today, you're going to have a son. And so, and Abraham, of course, laughs at this, at the ridiculousness of this promise, even when God comes down, knocks on his front door, and tells him it a second time. Abraham and Sarah just laugh, and they don't trust in God's promise and in his provision for him. And so, Abraham, once again, gives Sarah away to another ruler for the same reasons, for political and financial stability. And of course, it doesn't work out the way he planned it to and that God planned it to. But God promises to provide this for Abraham, and Abraham gets Sarah back. And I don't think Abraham really gets it. I don't think it really clicks with him that all he has to do is receive the promise that God is giving him until, that is, Sarah conceives a son. And Abraham gets to hold Isaac in his arms and see God's promise fulfilled, at least partially. And he gets to see Isaac grow up into a young boy. And we read in Genesis that that Abraham loved Isaac, that he was his beloved son. And God even calls Isaac Abraham's only son that he loves. And to see, to test Abraham, to see if he was really bought in to this promise that God was about to make to him, this one of the most important promises of the Bible that's coming up. God wanted to make sure he was going to trust in that and believe it. So what God tells Abraham to do, he tells him to go, to take Isaac, his son, his only son, the son that he loves, and go to a mountain and to sacrifice him to God. And so Abraham rises early in the morning, and he doesn't tell anyone where he's going because Abraham's done listening to other people. He's done letting other people control his life and his course, and he's going to listen to God at this point, and he's trusting that God will provide for him. And so Abraham doesn't tell anyone where he's going, and he goes with Isaac and a couple servants. And when they get to the mountain, he tells the servants to stay at the bottom of the mountain, and he says this. Listen to this. He says, me and the boy will return. Because Abraham really thought he was about to go kill his son, but he trusted in God that he was going to provide for him through Isaac as he had promised. And he didn't listen to the wisdom of the world or of his own logic that says dead people don't come back to life, and he listened to God's promise instead. As he's walking up this mountain with Isaac, Isaac asks him, Father, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham, I can imagine holding back tears maybe, says, God will provide for the sacrifice, my son. Because Abraham was trusting in God. And he wasn't listening to the sin of his own heart, the desire of his own heart, that selfish desire that told him he didn't want to listen to God and that he didn't want to kill his own son. But he trusted God. And Abraham makes this altar. He lays Isaac down on it. He raises the knife ready to kill him. And God calls out to him, Abraham, do not lay a hand on the boy. Because now I know that you trust in my promise. 
and that you will not even withhold your only son from me. And God provides for Abraham a ram stuck in a thorn bush as a sacrifice on behalf of Isaac. And God makes this final important promise to Abraham. He tells him that his descendants are going to be as innumerable as the stars and as the sand on the seashore, and that through this offspring, all the nations of the earth, the whole world, would be blessed. And this promise went from Abraham and was passed on to Isaac, on through the generations of Israel, from Isaac to Jacob, from Jacob to Judah, to Boaz, to Obed, to Jesse, to King David, to King Solomon, all throughout the royalty of Israel, even into the captivity, the promise still passed on from generation to generation when Israel was a prisoner in a foreign land. And when they returned, that promise continued to be passed on, even through the Roman occupation, to a man named Joseph and was fulfilled in his son, a man named Jesus. And Jesus, just as that ram that was given to Abraham and was killed by the father Abraham on behalf of his son Isaac, in the same way Jesus, with a crown of thorns on his head, was the sacrifice from God the Father on behalf of his beloved children. You. You who walk the road of peace. You who see yourselves as unimportant as small, you who, who don't think you have much to contribute, you are valued and you are loved more than you could ever imagine. So much so that God gave up his only son for you as a sacrifice. So that even though, like Abraham, you wander into sin this way, you wander over here into sin, you're forgiven. And that the conflict that you have with God, with the sinfulness in your own heart, is resolved. Because Jesus gives you ultimate peace and stability. A peace that is eternal and everlasting. I want to leave you with this. As you who walk on the road of peace go, here's some ways you can grow. By recognizing the way that you avoid conflict in your life. By recognizing the specific conflicts that you try to avoid in your life. And not ignoring them. But also admitting the ways in which you try to avoid and ignore and forget about the conflicts in your life. And then share those conflicts Share those ways, those strategies in which you avoid the conflicts with someone close to you. Someone who's going to help you resolve those conflicts. Someone who is going to point you back to Jesus every time so that you know that you can take those conflicts head on. You don't have to avoid them because Jesus took on the biggest conflict in your life, your sin with God. He took that head on and resolved it so that you can do the same with any conflict in this world. And for those of you who know someone who's on this road, a way you can love them is that you can encourage them. Encourage them more to, to share 
their opinions, their thoughts, their ideas, all of these things, because they have some good ideas. They just need a little bit of boldness to share them. And also, be sure to know what their strategies are to avoid a conflict. Know what their strategies are to numb themselves out and forget about conflict. And when you see them doing that, you can help them by gently coming alongside them and seeing if they'll tell you what conflict they're dealing with in their life. And trying to help them resolve that, all the while pointing them back to Jesus. Because most of the time they know how to resolve the conflict. They just don't want to look at it. They don't want to deal with it. But going to them gently with a reminder that Jesus has defeated every conflict in your life, that can help them resolve it. I want to go back for a minute as I wrap up this sermon. It's almost over, don't worry. As I go, I want to go back to that imagery that we had at the beginning, that you're on this boat in life, and that all these things are trying to wrestle away control from you. And you're going to end up in, in the weeds of sin over here. You're going to end up stuck in some sin over there. You're going to end up in places you never thought you would be and where God doesn't want you to be. But no, that when you end up in that sin, if you turn back to Jesus and call out to him for help, he will help you every time. And he will bring you back into open water. He's going to rechart your course for you. And he's going to give you a guide, the Holy Spirit, so that the Holy Spirit will help you to stay on that course even a little bit better. You won't do it perfectly, but it'll help you follow God's will for your life that much better. And you'll learn on how to do that better and better every day until the day Jesus returns when he gives you peace. When you, who don't like to be the center of attention, are welcomed into heaven by the applause of all the hosts of heaven as one repentant sinner who turned back to Jesus. And we're saved by him. And Jesus has a place specifically prepared for you in that new kingdom when he returns. And you will have peace with Jesus forever because he will be in control and in charge of your life. The only person you should ever be a complete follower of. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us here together today to hear your word. We thank you for the opportunity to come here and to receive your gifts of forgiveness. And we thank you for those who seek to bring peace into the world, and we pray that we would do the same to bring peace to the world. And we pray that we would look to you alone for that peace because we know it can only be provided to us by you through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.